one of the things that I liked most about school when I was growing up was always leaving it. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I was one of the weirdos that uh, actually enjoyed school. I did like it. I liked the learning, uh, and the atmosphere, for the most part, uh, was enjoyable. But I liked leaving school, especially on uh, field trips. I like to go on those. Is, is, is there anyone? Help me out. Is there anyone who liked to go on a field trip? Yeah, okay. And this morning we're going to not go. Uh, the very first field trip that I can remember was maybe senior kindergarten, maybe grade one. I'm not sure exactly of the year, but I know that I was still new to this whole school thing. And my mom was going to drive to the field trip. So even better was that my good friend uh, from my street, Samantha DeGreiter, was going to get dropped off at our house to drive with us to, ah, it's great, right? We're going to the zoo. So I'm eagerly waiting at home for all this to happen. Uh, I'm watching the door but can't be still, so I'm running around, and I look down the hall and I could see outside through the glass storm door movement. I go, she's here! And I scream it out, and I run down the hall to greet her and to open the door for her. Like, what a little gentleman. Uh, just had to, to do this. And there she is, and I'm running, and, and I'm running towards the door, and I lift my hand up to push the handle on the door to unlatch the door, and I miss the handle. And I put my hand through the glass, and I look down shocked, at now my profusely bleeding hand, and I begin to cry. It becomes clear almost instantly. There's glass sticking out of my hand. No zoo for me. Instead, I got my own private field trip to the hospital for stitches. So that turned out to not be my very first school field trip. But, but I always like the idea about traveling to learn. You, you learn differently, secretly, accidentally almost, when you learn on location. You learn a lesson, but you also get the atmosphere of the place. And it's a great teaching technique, and it can be harnessed in so many ways. You know who's a great teacher? Jesus. Jesus, when he was on earth, he was a great teacher, and he liked to use so many different teaching techniques. He used object lessons, he told stories, and he used field trips. Today, we're going to look at a field trip that Jesus took his disciples on, and to help set the scene for that, I've asked Philip Paul to help me out. Come on up, Phil. Paint the picture. Set the scene for us. Welcome him. Come on up. Do it. Good morning, everybody. St. Jerome has called the land of Israel itself the fifth gospel, the land itself testifies about the story of Christ. The question that I'm seeking to answer today is, why did Jesus go to Caesarea Philippi? In order to do that, I'm going to step back. Why am I even asking this question? 
for that, we need a little bit of context, both physical and cultural. First off, Caesarea was quite remote. It was a two-day journey, so in order to go there, you need to be quite intentional about it. It represents the furthest point north that Jesus did travel in his ministry. And not only was it remote, the terrain to get there was quite harsh over rugged back roads and up the foothills of the highest point of Israel, Mount Hermon. And on top of that, it was not a Jewish area. It was very pagan, very Greek. And on there, in the spot that Jesus was going in Caesarea Philippi, there was a temple complex dedicated to the Greek god Pan. So it was a place that was very distant, both physically and spiritually. As well as that, many battles have been fought on that location, both historical and mythological. Now I want to unpack a couple of items. On this rock, I will build my church. It was a very rocky area with a lot of outcroppings. There's been a lot of views as to what this has even meant. Some say it's the person of Peter. Others say it's the confession of Peter. And there's a few people who say they were talking about the area. Whatever it was, Jesus was using the backdrop of the rocky outcroppings. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Within this temple complex, there was a temple to Zeus. And behind that temple, there was a cave. And in the Greek Hellenistic religion, they believed that this cave was the entrance into Hades physically. All right. Then later on, Jesus addressed the crowd and said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. In order to reiterate, this was a two days journey. And according to Matthew 17, 1, they spent six days in Caesarea Philippi and two day journey back. So people were leaving their jobs, their careers for this 10 day period. And Jesus turned to them then and said, if you want to follow me, here's what you really have to do. All right. So may you walk in the dust of Rabbi Jesus, Son of God and Messiah, as you seek to follow him. God bless. Thank you, Phil, who apparently knows how to turn on a microphone better than I do. <laughs> So we got a little bit of the scene. We're telling you the scene uh, before we really introduce where we are, okay? But we're, we're in the middle of a story, so this is what's happened to get where they are. And so frequently, the Bible doesn't give you the explanation of the, the trip. They went there, right? And that's all they say. But it's important to know where they are. And so thanks, Phil, for helping us understand where they were. Um, because that makes a difference in how we see it. Now, as we're in this section, there's a number of lessons that are being taught in this little section of Scripture that we're going to get to, Matthew chapter 16, if you want to read this whole section later on. And some are obvious, uh, right, right on the surface, and some are more subtle. They're going to require you to put together uh, pieces of information. 
So when Jesus asks a question, first of all, just start this out, there's usually layers in that question. So, so when he conversationally just asks the disciples, who, who do you say I am? There's definitely more going on than you see at first. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now you understand what we're talking about. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, took him two days to walk out there, right? He asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's going, they've heard of me, right? Somebody's heard of me. So what do they say? What have you heard? What's the scuttlebutt? What's going on underneath? 14, and they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? I mean, that's them, right? That's the crowd. That's the social media, right? What, what about you? What do you say? You've been around me. You've seen the way I behave. You, you, you've listened to the way that I teach. You've seen the miracles that I do. After being with me, seeing what you have seen, who do you say that I am? And this is a far trickier question than we might see at first. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Messiah, sure, but what kind? What kind of Messiah? So sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. Simon Peter has a brother named Andrew. Back at the beginning of Andrew and Simon's Jesus story, we find out that Andrew told Simon Peter about Jesus. We find this in John chapter 1, starting at verse 40. Andrew, we just talked about Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. Tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. So Simon Peter's first introduction to Jesus was as Messiah. I mean, at least that's what his brother was telling him, Messiah. But what does Messiah mean? Like when we hear it, we think of something different than they do. Because basically everyone in Israel knew about the Messiah. They've all been expecting. They've all been praying for. They've all been longing for, hoping for Messiah. And for a long time, it just made sense that this coming Messiah of God would be a military leader. I mean, a fighting Messiah. He was going to save His people. What else could saving mean? He was going to free his people. What else could freeing mean? Just like Joshua, right? Or should I say just like Yeshua, the successor of Moses, the lawgiver? You remember him? How else could freedom come? Free us from Rome. Free us from oppression. God, deliver us. God, save us. Hosanna, 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 save us and take your throne and lead us into a new dominant path. Let us be the ones in charge. Let your kingdom come. Messiah was going to make it all happen. Messiah was going to make all things right once again. Messiah, save us. Who had Yeshua 
Who had Jesus been revealing himself to be? Same name, right? But Yeshua or Joshua comes from a transliteration from Hebrew, and Jesus comes from the Greek. So those languages referenced are the languages that these original ancient documents were written in. The Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in, in uh, ancient Greek or in Aramaic, both of those. There had long been a foreign power dominating Israel, many generations going back. There were the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. Eventually, the Greeks came under the guidance of Alexander the Great. As Alexander the Great, the champion and war leader of the Greeks, as he lay dying at age 33 in June 323 B.C., he's dying in Babylon. He was asked to whom he would leave his kingdom. He said, to the strongest. And those words unleashed two centuries of brutal warfare across the world to decide who was the strongest. When another young man, about 33, prepared to die on a Greek-imported instrument of execution called the cross, he answered similar questions by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. By his voluntary death, Christ unleashed a movement of faith, of hope, of love, of light and mercy into a world that had been darkened by death and despair. He fought for us rather than sending us to fight for Him. While the Christian life is a fight on many levels, it is not a fight to bring the kingdom through human power, a challenge that would summon the strong. No, the crucified king was never called Jesus the Great, but his movement was made of the humility of a child the lowliness of service, the vulnerability of weakness, and the shame of the foolish, the characteristics of His peaceful kingdom's faithful advance. This kingdom will not be given to the strong who fight, but the humble who cry out for mercy. Yes, there have been a number of greats throughout history. There was Alexander the Great and Catherine the Great, Peter the great. But you will search in vain for any reference anywhere to Jesus the great. And the reason? This is so evident. He defined kingdom and greatness in terms that are utterly upside down from the way that a merely human ruler would. So the next time that you meet a believer who is angrily fighting someone, remember, Jesus is not the great, but He is the Lord, and He will do the fighting. Just like in Isaiah 9, 7, it describes this. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So when you come across that angry, fighting Christian, tell them. Tell that Christian who's angrily fighting to put their sword away. 
and then to pray for the healing of the people that their reckless defense of Jesus has wounded. He must live in light of the king. We must live in light of the kingdom that Jesus established, the way that Jesus established it. We live according to the laws of that land first. Jesus is our king, and he reigns in his kingdom that we represent. We live outwards, displaying our kingdom allegiance in all of our everyday pursuits. Jesus first, everything else after. So yeah, Messiah. What kind of Messiah were they expecting? When Jesus was a little boy, he learned of the Messiah, and he was longing for the Messiah to come and lift the oppressive boot of Rome off the necks of his people. But Jesus has been with Jesus for a while. Peter. Check. Check, check. Meanwhile, back at Jesus being in charge of the uh, empire, uh, Peter has grown up waiting for a Messiah. His whole life he's been waiting for a Messiah. And the Messiah that he's waiting for is the Messiah that his country was waiting for. And he's seen things now, though. He's seen things that he wasn't expecting to see when he started his understanding of who Messiah was. He's heard things. And these new things, unexpected things, things coming from a different direction. And he's been forced to think about things in a new way. Now, Simon, he's just about to reveal a change in his understanding of what and who the Messiah is and what that Messiah will be like. So Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And that question right there gets up inside Simon's head. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You get it. I mean, you see it. And it's not what you expected, was it? 18, And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The rock, the rock that we're going to build on, okay? On this rock I will build my church. The identity of the rock, well, throughout history this is a highly debated theological point, okay? And the implications have been incredibly significant. Is the rock Peter? I mean, is, is that just a wordplay kind of game on the, uh, on the name that Jesus just gave Simon? The Greek word for Peter is Petros. Petra is the Greek word that means rock, and those are really just one of those masculine, feminine kind of distinctions in language. In Aramaic, kepha means rock, K-E-P-H-A. And you know that as you read through the New Testament, you will periodically come across Peter being called Cephas or Cephas, C-E-P-H-A-S. It's a transliteration of the Aramaic word Kepha. That man, Simon, the rock, Jesus named him now Peter, which means the rock, becomes the basis for the papacy 
and the popes. That's the view, that's the teaching, that's the practice of the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you have had a history and a familiarity with the Roman Catholic Church, and that might be what you have always heard. This is where we get the idea of popes. This is why Peter is so significant. The other side was that there is the, the rock is the statement that Peter makes when he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And there Jesus is saying, finally, now, now that someone has been found who is prepared to confess Jesus as what and who he really is, and not just try to slide him in, fit him into the inherited framework, this is what a Messiah will be like. Now that we've got someone who can say that, a start can be made. We can start with the forming of the community of true disciples, the ecclesia, who will carry on Jesus' mission after his departure. I, I, I'm going to say it's not Peter who is the foundation, the rock. But Peter... The confessor of Jesus provides the foundation. He shows us the rock. In the same way going forward, this is how each of us who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's the son of the living God, that's how each one of us enter into the community of faith. It's not the status of the confessor that matters, but the truth of the confession. Where Jesus is confessed as Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, it is there at that place that His church exists. The confession is the rock. The power is in the one who is confessed, not the confessor. And as long as the church maintains that confession, the, the, the gates of the prison house of Hades, death will never close on her. So Hades, hell, the realm of the dead, Death itself, Sheol, the netherworld, all the powers of hell, those are the different terms used in different translations to try and draw out the meaning of that gates of hell phrase. Jesus promises and declares, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Okay, Perhaps you're more familiar with the phrase, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Because hell sounds stronger. It, it impacts the imagery. It sounds more battle-ready. Uh, the powers of light and, and the powers of darkness are going to square off, and it evokes all of the, the different hell imagery that lingers just under the surface in so much of our culture. And if you're like me, you can visualize the scene. We, we have Jesus standing before his disciples, and he's making the declaration, and, and, and then the shot fades from Jesus talking to his disciples to the words that are echoing now down in the pits of hell and the lake of fire. And just as he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. You can see like a huge wave of lava crashing up against some very sharp pointy crags of black rock. And you can hear the screams of demons in the background. It's a great visual. Uh, for some reason, those pictures burst forth, and in our imaginations, or at least my imagination, the gates of hell. I have often heard the gates of hell 
um, being used in Christian language as, as if it was meant to say, the gates are coming to get us. Hell is coming for us. The kingdom of darkness is expanding, and the gates represent the boundaries of the dark kingdom. Beware the gates of hell. Or sometimes as people are praying, uh, praying for God to be at work, saving or, or, or protecting people, they, they pray to hold back the gates of hell. Don't let the gates of hell prevail against our ministry. Hold back the gates of hell as our city slides into a moral quagmire. We're being overwhelmed by bad things, so God, please hold back the gates of hell. And when we hear uh, a good visual image or a good phrase, we jump on that sucker and we ride it, right? It just sounds good. It sounds more powerful. It sounds impressive to the people that are listening to me. Uh, and, and people can get a little bit worked up, right? And getting a little bit of a lather in the, in the prayers. They're naming and claiming things for God to do. God, do these things. Have you heard this? Just me again? Man, I feel like I live in a different world sometimes. Like, people that I've met, uh, I feel like I've had all these experiences that seemed weird, but everyone around me was just like, no, no, this is all pretty standard around here. That's just Daryl. <laughs> That's the way Daryl prays. Uh, so, <laughs> you don't have any of these things? How come I know all? Maybe you're the weird people that I know. Uh, so what's going on with these gates talk? What, what, what do they mean? What's going on under here? What, what's Jesus referring to when he said it, right? Does, does that look the same as the way the term has been used in our culture or perhaps more accurately, I should say, in our subculture? Gates, what do they do? What are they there for? Th this is not like the back gate that you use to enter your backyard, these gates are essential to ancient cultures. These, the cities that they live in are surrounded by protective walls to keep people out. There's invasions happening all the time, and the gates are a key to a city's defense. The gate symbolizes security. We say, close the gates, keep them out, or keep them in. That keeps us safe from invaders and from enemies. It limits the points of entry and exit only through the gates. The gates regulate traffic both in and out. And in ancient times, the cities were surrounded by walls with gates. And in battles, the gates of these cities would usually be the first place that the enemies assaulted. This, this was because the protection of the city was determined by the strength of uh, the power of its gates. Gates of hell, the gates of Hades, means the power of Hades. The name Hades was originally the name of the God who presided over the realm of the dead. It was often referred to um, as the house of Hades, and it was the designated place to which everyone who departs this life descends, regardless of their moral character. Everyone goes to Hades. It's the realm of the dead. And in the New Testament, Hades is the realm of the dead. And in this verse, Hades, or hell, depending on the translation, is represented as a mighty city with its gates representing its power. To possess the gate is to be in charge of the city. For an enemy to possess your gates means they have captured your city. So the gates are built up and they're armored, they're highly defended. Both the Greeks and the Romans have plenty of stories about morals, mortals who uh, entered 
or were abducted to the netherworld through the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. There's Hercules and Odysseus, Orpheus. Uh, there's the story crossing the river Styx. Hades himself comes up and he kidnaps the goddess uh, Persephone from a field in Sicily and he, he leads her down into the underworld so that he could marry her. Hades is referred to in many, many ancient cultures. So when you hear it in the Bible, when you see it written there, it can make some Christians freak out just a little, right? Because it doesn't sound Christian-y. It sounds mythological-y. And that's why some Christians like to only refer to any of that stuff as hell. And that brings about confusion, right? That's part of our mixed message today. What are we actually talking about? Is it all the same? Is death hell? Are they the same thing? Are they separate places? But the translations and the translators realize that it's not always talking about the same thing. We need another word. So uh, come back in November, and we're going to talk some more about hell and Hades and what is meant by these terms and where the imagery comes from that we are so familiar with hearing and seeing. But gates don't attack us, right? We go to gates and we go to the gates to set people free. Even the kingdom of death cannot stand against Christ and his church. But the language is much more about resistance. Uh, the gates of hell will not be able to resist the advancement of Christ's church. Or the kingdom of death will not be able to stand against Christ's power and his resurrection power. The powers of hell will not conquer it. That's what the New Living Translation says. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The ESV, the English Standard uh, Version, or the King James Bible say it that way. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. The New International Version and the North American Standard Bible. The gates of Hades, death, will not overpower it by preventing the resurrection of the Christ. Amplified Version. The force of Hades will not overpower it. Holman Christian Standard Bible. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Authorized Standard Version. And death itself will not have any power over it. Contemporary English Version. Not even death will ever be able to overcome it. Good News Translation. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. The message. We are on a mission to storm the gates, to set the captives free. Jesus refers here in this passage, what he's talking about is his impending death. Once again, telling them this is what's going to happen. Though he would be crucified, though he would be dead, though he would be buried, he would rise from the dead and continue to build his church. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that the powers of death could not hold him in, could not hold him down. Not only would the church be established in spite of the powers of Hades or hell, but the church would thrive. In spite of these powers, the church will never fail through generation after generation, even as they continue to succumb to the power of physical death, yet other generations will arise to perpetuate the church, and it will continue until it has fulfilled its mission on earth 
as Jesus has commanded in the Great Commission. Jesus was declaring that death has no power to hold God's people captive. Its gates are not strong enough to overpower and keep imprisoned the church of God. The Lord has conquered death. And because death is no longer master over him, it is no longer master over those who belong to him. Satan currently holds the power of death, and he will always use that, use that power to try and destroy the church of Jesus. But we have this promise from Jesus himself that, that his church, his called out ones, the ecclesia, will prevail. John chapter 14, verse 9, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. The message of Jesus is, is that death will not overcome my kingdom. My kingdom will last forever. Not even death has the power to stop this movement. Resurrection. Resurrection power for Jesus and for the followers of Jesus. Nothing can stop it. Death will not stop me, Jesus says. But now, who do you say that he is? Who do, you, who do you recognize Jesus to be? Will you let that change the way that you live? Will you let that transforming power of the Holy Spirit, powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, will you allow that Holy Spirit to move in you? Like Simon Peter did, will you allow your view of Messiah to fade into who he really is? Will you allow Jesus to reveal himself to you? Will you trust him with your today and with your tomorrow? Not even death will prevail against him. Father, I thank you for the power of the one that you sent to this earth, but not that he had power in and of himself. He cast that aside. He set that aside when he came to earth so that he would live as just like us. And yet you anointed him. You empowered him by the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that you have said can empower us. The same way that Jesus lived on the earth in, in direct contact with you Steady, unbreaking, repeatedly connecting contact. Staying within your will, doing what you asked. All that was possible for Jesus came because of that connection. So we don't have to fear where we are. It's not that things can't damage us or hurt us. It's that they don't end the story. Lord Jesus, I pray that today, again, you would give to us the gift of freedom, the freedom from fear, that we might trust you, that we might live according to what you have directed, not so that you won't be mad at us because we followed all your rules, but because we stayed in contact with you, staying connected and adjusting our existence with your nudges, with your prompts with your direction. 
Stay connected to us, I pray. As we get distracted, as we get busy, as we become upset with things that happen around us, the decisions that people make, that government makes, that the messages that are sent that disorient us, physical conditions like health that come in to distract. Give us the gift of that firm, clear connection to you that we might live in such a way that we would declare your kingdom, proclaiming freedom for the oppressed, hope for the hopeless. Use us in that mission we continue to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.